Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where we speak to leading general counsels of Fortune 500 companies to see what we can learn. Today, I'm super excited to have with us Cam Finlay, Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary of Archer Daniels Midland. Hi, Cameron, and welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, Cameron, I have to say I had some mixed emotions when I was doing a bit of research on the podcast here, of course, because firstly, super excited to get someone of your caliber and achievements on the podcast. And I'm going to do just a very quick summary and summarize some of the highlights for listeners. So, you know, right out of the gates, clerking for Justice Scalia in the US Supreme Court, then a senior aide and chief of staff to the US President George Bush Sr., a partner at Sidley Austin, and a senior vice president general counsel at three Fortune 500 companies in very different industries. And they're just some of the highlights. And I have to say, Cam, when I looked at that and I compared it to my 25-year career at law firms, I just felt mine was a little bland. So... Don't be silly. And actually, you promoted me by giving me a better title at the White House than I had, but I'll, I'll take it. You'll take that? Great. Yeah, sure. The first question I'd love to ask is, if I think about that kind of career and the variety in that, is that something that you kind of set out from the beginning strategically? Was it more just a case of opportunity? Tell me a little bit about that journey and how those opportunities came up and how planned or, or perhaps serendipitous it really was. Well, it, it was definitely intentional to some extent. There was a book I read in the 80s called The Wise Men that talked about some of these great American diplomats that would serve in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And they would, uh, when uh, they were out of power, they'd be off at a law firm practicing law or at a company. And then when they had the opportunity, they'd go back again. And I kind of thought at that time, that's the kind of life I would like to have. So, you know, you think about somebody like George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State who just passed away, or for him, there was a guy named Henry Stimson that was, I think, Secretary of State and Secretary of War, and he was a Republican, but he served Harry Truman. And, you know, I thought that's a pretty, that'd be a pretty good life. So it's more difficult to do today, I think, both because, at least in our country, the political world's much more polarized and and honestly, the you know the ethics rules make it harder to go in and out of government. But it you know it was something that I kind of intentionally wanted to do. But having said that, you know luck and serendipity and being opportunistic have probably played an even bigger role. And if I were talking to a one or to a young lawyer, that would be one of the pieces of advice I'd give. You know, I came off my clerkship with Justice Scalia, as, as you mentioned, and all of my fellow law clerks were going off to big law firms and uh, getting big bonuses, actually. And I had a few opportunities to go to work in the George H.W. Bush administration, which was just getting underway that year. And I kind of thought, like, you know, I got to take this opportunity while it's there, because who knows, you know, whether a Republican will win again in 92 or 96 or 2000. And as it turned out, of course, I did take the opportunity, went to work in the Bush administration. But four years later, President Bush lost to this guy named Governor Clinton from Arkansas, and he had eight years in there. So had I not gone in when I did, it would have been, you know, 11 or 12 years out of law school. 
that yep. I would not have gotten the opportunity to work in government, which is one of my dreams. So, and I would say even in terms of being a GC, I, you know, I there's luck involved because I happen to be involved in alumni affairs for my undergraduate alma mater, Northwestern, and I got to know the CEO of Aon, who was on the Northwestern board, and he somehow remembered me. So when I went off to Washington the second time, he called me out of the blue and offered me the Aon general counsel job without a search or without an interview, really, even. So, you know, obviously, I didn't know that by being involved in Northwestern alumni activities, I was auditioning for a job as GC, but that's how it happened. And so there's a lot of luck involved. It's funny. I talk about that quite a bit, just being open to opportunities, taking them when they come by and building early the ability to just create opportunities. And it's usually just by saying yes more than saying no. And those kind of, well, those opportunities then present themselves. You've got to be willing to take risks. Yes. Yeah. Move off yeah. of the linear path that, you know, you come out of law school, you go to a law firm, you become partner at the law firm, and 40 years later, you retire and six years later you die. And that's that's the path. And, and it takes courage sometimes to jump off the path and do something. Yeah. So, so certainly from a personal perspective, that was a path that I had taken for quite some time, jumped off a few years ago. So let's see where that takes us. But so back to you, Cam, thinking about the industries that you've spent your career in, I mean, I'm, there's four of them at least, government, insurance, your time uh, as general counsel at Aon, pharma, vet, medical devices, your time as a senior vice president, General Counsel and Secretary at um, Medtronic. A shout out to Minneapolis, a fantastic city. And I have actually been to the Medtronic head office a couple of times, hustled out there. Have you really? And also, of course, agriculture, your, your current time at ADM. Tell me about what you see as perhaps the advantages and disadvantages of each of those industries. You know, I think it, it, it makes you a better general counsel to have been exposed to different industries. At ADM, where I am now, it's an extremely thin low margin industry. And so we have to make every dollar count, whether it's uh, in our outside legal spending or in terms of hiring internal lawyers. Resources are at a premium here. And now Medtronic, our margins were pretty healthy. And I had a huge legal staff. We you know, could pay our lawyers more and so forth. And I kind of wish I had had the ADM experience before I had the Medtronic or Aon experience because I think I could have done more with less. Have done and I didn't yep. know then that I could. So if it's possible to start at a low margin industry before you go to a high margin, that's probably the better way to do it. But I, you know, I think that's an advantage. Another advantage of working in different industries is just the, the varied type of work that one does. You, know, you, you have to learn a new industry, you have to learn a new area of the law. I think all of us tend to you know, get a little bit bored at times. Yep. So I, I think it's great to have new challenges and, and have to confront those things you don't know about. Now, in terms of the disadvantages, it's exactly the same. The disadvantages, you've got to learn a new industry. You've got to learn a whole new area of the law every time you move and new lexicon and acronyms and everything. And so it can be a little disorienting. The first year is really one where you're, you're just you know, learning the business rather than leaping right in. Although I expect in the longer term, just the continual learning, the sharpening, the skills, it's got to be overall, I would have thought the pluses certainly would have outweighed the minuses in having that. Yeah, and if I were to send a message to legal headhunters, they always will say, we're looking for somebody, you know, for a pharma company that's from a pharma company. And I've always pushed back with them saying, like, 
you know, I think the skills of being a general counsel are pretty transferable. You ought to go for what we'd say here in the States, the best available athlete in the draft. But headhunters don't do that. They kind of put on their blinders and look for somebody that's from the same industry. And sometimes I expect that's also been influenced by those who are instructing their headhunters. It's so easy to say, I need someone who understands my industry. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's right. Are there any, you know, a, a couple of highlights, memorable achievements when you look back on that, the kind of career that you've had that, that really stand out for you? And I should warn you, I'm going to ask also to balance the equation a little, a point at which you think you kind of missed the mark. So tell me about some of the highlights that stand out for you. You know, at Aon, I had been there about six months or so when I got a telephone call at 5.30 on a Tuesday night. And my assistant had left for the day, so I answered the phone. It was a 212 number, which is in New York City. Yep. And the guy at the other end of the phone said, you know, my name is Matthew Gall. I'm an assistant attorney general in Elliot Spitzer's office, and we're going to serve a subpoena on you. You know, will you accept service? And so we were hit, along with everybody else in the insurance industry, with a massive investigation that was really kind of an existential threat to our companies. Marsh and McLennan, which was the biggest insurance broker, slightly bigger than us, ended up settling for $850 million and their CEO and general counsel both lost their jobs and Aon was right in line behind them. And so I had to, while I was still learning how to be a general counsel and learning where the men's room was, handle this massive existential threat to the company. So, you know, Aon, I think, came out of it a lot better than other companies in the industry did. It was in part because we didn't feel like we'd done anything wrong to merit what the attorney general was asking of us. We also went at it with a fairly cooperative attitude and, and made it an open book. We didn't at all obstruct uh, any of his investigation. And I think they appreciated that and we got credit for it. So I'd say the handling of that Spitzer investigation is one. And then I went to Medtronic and we had another very serious investigation involving a spinal product called Infuse that was essentially a protein that would grow bone, fuse parts of the spine together. And there were safety issues raised about, about this product. There were federal criminal investigations. There were media issues. There was a, a scientific journal that was written questioning the safety of the product. So it was kind of a multi-front war. And you had, to, you had a lot of balls in here at any point in time. And I, I felt like we handled that very well because it was a very good product, a safe product, and we felt it was unfairly targeted. And then I guess as a third, I'd say we won the Corporate Counsel Magazine's best legal department when I was at Medtronic. And then I came here and I kind of had my playbook for how you improve a legal department. We did it here and we got the award again six years later. So I'm very proud that with my teams, I was able to significantly improve a couple of legal departments in Great America. Fantastic. And what about balancing the equation there a little, Cam? Any time that you thought you didn't quite hit the mark or fell short or perhaps had your time again, would try a different strategy? Yeah, I don't know that I've got any particular, you know, item that, that I would view as an issue in the same way as those successes. But I would say I, I was trained as a lawyer. I don't have an MBA. And I never feel like I can contribute as much in our executive committee meetings on the business side of things. Because I've always admired people who could look at a spreadsheet and immediately zero in on the number that matters. And that's that's not a skill that I've learned in my life. I've 
tried very hard, and I certainly try to understand our businesses. But I, if if there's something that I, you know, would like to be better at, it's understanding the business side of our business because I think it's so critical to be a good lawyer and a good advisor to understand the business that you're advising. I expect also, you know, being part of the C-suite, there's a level of expectation amongst the C-suite that, that well, that there'll be certainly a level of understanding. And in the early days, I imagine there's quite a bit of work to get to that point, but I, I can understand entirely. Yeah. The underlying training or the absence of it might make it harder than it otherwise would be. Yeah, I think, you know, I, as I said, I, I tell new lawyers coming in here that the most important thing they should learn is how their business operates, how the business makes money, because that's what the business people care about. And so I certainly try to emulate that, but I don't know that I always succeed. Tell me a little bit about how you think the role of general counsel, certainly during the course of your career, has changed, if at all. You know, I, I guess I'd go back maybe a little farther than the beginning of my career, because there is a guy, Ben Heineman, another Chicagoan, who was the general counsel at General Electric. And he really transformed the role of general counsel from being an in-house lawyer that, you know, provides legal advice, but hires outside lawyers to essentially be a much more strategic advisor to the business. And I would say, you know, another way in which the, the role has evolved is I think CEOs increasingly looked at general counsels to be a crisis manager. And every company will have a crisis. If, if you've had a crisis, you know that. If you had not had a crisis, you will. So I think you know, going from just being a straight-out lawyer to a strategic partner and a crisis manager is one. I think another in, in, uh, is that you go from being a lawyer to essentially a CEO of a big operation. You've got to buy technology that will allow you to do your job. You have to hire people. You have to manage people when they start fighting with each other. You have to have a budget and you have to watch spending, internal and external. And not to mention that in many companies like ours, you take on all these other roles like regulatory compliance, risk insurance, ESG, and some other companies not here, public affairs, HR reporting, general counsel. So I think it's just become a much broader role in the last 15 or 20 years. And, you know, it sometimes does feel like you're juggling a lot of balls at the same time. I'm going to come to that point in a moment, actually, about running the legal department as a business. Just before I do that, you talked about people, and I'm interested in your views on attracting and what a GC has to do to attract great people to her or his team. Well, I've sort of stolen some things from my first company and translated in the other two, and I, I usually try to have three strategic pillars of things that we're trying to do. And one of them that has been constant in all three companies is people or talent, because it goes without saying that in a legal department, all we are is people. We, you know, we don't have any machines. We don't make anything. We're people. We're brains. So you got to get the best brain. And so I treat every open position as an absolutely precious opportunity to improve the quality of the legal department, because they don't come open very often. You're not allowed to hire as often as you like. So every time you have a job, I, I, every new lawyer who's coming into the department, I insist on interviewing the finalists myself, even if it's a junior lawyer in China or a junior lawyer in Sao Paulo or something, because I, I want to send the message to everyone, and particularly that person, that I take people seriously. So I, I think that 
the main thing is you've got to make people your number one priority, and that's just a given in a legal department. And then you'll get good people. And, and I think communicating that, and that that's across, of course, not just the lawyers in your legal team, no doubt the operational members yeah. of your team too. Yeah, the paralegals. The uh, you know I have other areas like regulatory and compliance and so forth, and so I do a town hall every six months with everybody just to talk about what's going on in the company and you know try to bring some transparency to what we're trying to accomplish and lay out the goals for the departments for the company and report progress on and things like that. I think communications is just you know, like the most critical thing for a legal department. People, they're all you know lawyers are smart. They expect to be trusted with information and so. You know, I really do try to put my thumb on the scale of over-communicating rather than under There are a number of themes, Cam, that certainly we've been hearing over the last couple of years. And what I'm going to do is put those themes out to you. These are themes arising from a number of discussions we've had with general counsel in-house teams. And I'd just like to get your thoughts on those themes. The first one you kind of touched on a little bit, the theme of the need to be able to run the legal department like a business. What are your thoughts on that? Now, I, I actually gave a talk on this when I was at Medtronic that it was kind of the general counsel as CEO of legal, because you think about it, you know, big companies like ours and some of the others that you're talking to, the legal department will have hundreds of people. It will spend tens of millions of dollars, maybe more than that in some, some companies. And it's like a small company, not as big as the overall company I'm in. But so, you know, we have to have, we have to set a budget. We have to stick to the budget and monitor our progress against it. We have to go out and get good IT, as I said, and because we use data to manage our individual cases, but then also to, to kind of manage the department as a whole. I get a, a report sent to me every Monday that talks about what we've been spending on cases, on what cases, who's the person handling them, what law firms we're using, that sort of thing. So I think we have all this great data and we need to use it. And then the other th way in which we're like a business is with hundreds of people, you have to hire good people, retain good people, motivate them, make sure that they feel valued as, as colleagues. And so I think there's an element of being out front and visible as a leader in your legal department, the way a CEO must be for the company. What about another thing we hear a lot about is certainly a number of, organ well, most organizations are going through a digital transformation journey of some kind. Do you find any pressure amongst the legal department to join in that journey and to digitize the function, become more data-driven? That's often spoken about. And what, what that actually means for legal, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I, you know, I think that the second most important thing after people these days is good information technology and good data for the reasons you say. I, you know, I, this report I get every Monday, I'll see how much is being spent on a matter. And if it's kind of running hot, I'll pick up the phone and call the lawyer handling and saying, what's, you know, what's going on? We also can, can use aggregate data. You know, how much does it cost to get to the motion to dismiss stage in a particular type of case? And that allows us to negotiate alternative fee arrangements with law firms because we can say, had 10 of these cases, it usually costs this much. Will you give us a package deal where, for this? And they can have confidence that, you know, we're not going to blow through the spending or, or that, they'll, that they'll get stepped and we'll have confidence we won't get stepped. We use our matter management system for all sorts of things that aren't really related to legal work, like um, 
our DNO questionnaires for all of our directors and officers are run through our system. And then we you know, collect and keep the data electronically. The certifications up to our CFO and CEO for the financial statements. I was just talking to our head of regulatory today, and she's going to use it to disseminate knowledge about regulatory trends in a regulatory department. So I think IT is extremely important. And I, I do think that any general counsel these days has to have a rudimentary understanding of IT. It's good to have a good head of operations to really know that stuff. But I think you can't be somebody that's using a dictaphone and not feeling very technologically capable on a computer. I expect a big portion of listeners out there don't actually know what a dictaphone is. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. the true story is that when I, I got here, one of my lawyers asked, and the request came up for a new piece of equipment, and this lawyer wanted a new dictaphone, and I hadn't heard of anybody wanting a dictaphone in many no. years. <laughs> I haven't heard that for some time, too, I have to say. It's like ro- a Rolodex, another word that will leave the lexicon soon. I'm not sure what the digital term is now for Rolodex, actually, or for dictaphone, but anyway. Yeah. A third theme that we hear a lot from GC is the commitment to diversity and inclusion. Your thoughts on, on that theme? Yeah, well, we've been stressing this, you know, for, for many years and, and it took on even greater importance in the last year here in the United States because of the, the George Floyd killing in the spring. So really for the last few years, we've been using what we refer to as a rooting rule. It's something based on what the National Football League does, which says there has to be a minority candidate for every coaching job. And we, we do that, that when we get to the final stage of you know three or four candidates, we want one of them to be a diverse candidate. And similarly, we want the interviewers for that round to have one diverse interviewer. And we've had good success doing that because there are, there are so many fine diverse candidates out there. You just have to make sure you're considering them. So you know our, our results are pretty good. I, I think we're the most diverse part of our company, I have 14 direct reports, and of those, nine are women and five are people of color. So unfortunately, that's not true of our entire company, but it is for us. Then, then the other piece of this, of course, is to push law firms to, to give you diverse teams and to advance diverse lawyers in their firms. And I think general counsels have to play an important role here. We have to ask law firms to do it. Law firms are doing all sorts of great stuff. But ultimately, you know, we're the ones who pay the bills, so they, you know, it's important for us to ask. We do an annual report card for each of our firms. We, we actually measure the diversity of the lawyers working for us through our matter management system also. We sit down with each firm and says, you know, say, you know, you had 80% men, 20% women. That's, that's you got to do better. And so we can really track to the, you know, to the whatever unit of time or dollar they use. So we know the percentage you know, with some hiccups in the data of, of diverse things working for us. And so, you know, we just finished our round of kind of report card sessions with our law firms, maybe last week, actually. And it was one of our themes that we stressed and we would pause on the page that shows in each case that they were not giving us their most diverse lawyer. And they would always have great presentations on all the things they're doing in their law firm to enhance diversity. We'd say like, that's great. You've got to keep doing that, but we want to see them on our matters because we think it's good systems and the right thing to do. On your teams. 
Yep. And speaking of law firms, Cam, I mean, you've got a very strong record in relation to controlling external legal spend. I think I read somewhere reducing that as a proportion of your overall spend from 85% to 50%. And your focus on alternative fee arrangements, fixed fees that we talked a little bit about so far. I'm interested in the how you manage the pressures, I suppose, that arise from having a strong focus on managing external spend and the relationships you're cultivating with your law firms and because they are key, of course, and you want to make sure they're strong and they're being maintained. So can you talk a little bit about that balance between your objectives of making sure you're optimizing legal spend, but yet really continuing to develop and strengthen your relationships with law firms? Yeah, I think that one has to have a sixth sense about when you're pushing a firm too hard. We do ask a lot of our firm of our firms. We we want good rates, we want the best service, we expect good results. And so we, you know, we do demand a lot of them. But in exchange, we've you know set up this ADM law firm alliance and we call it Alpha, that basically tells those law firms, if you'll partner with us in those ways we will kind of give you first dibs on our matters. So when somebody opens up a new matter in our system, which I have to and I have to approve a law firm for every every matter in the world, they have to say whether it's an alpha firm. And if not, they have to justify why they're not using an alpha firm. So we've been able to concentrate more of our work on our on a smaller number of firms. And in exchange, we get good rates and good service from them. I've always liked spending more money on fewer firms than, you know, spreading the money across a lot of firms, because you want to have those close relationships, especially not just for rates, but there are times you're going to call somebody on a Friday night and say, we've got a crisis, you know, we need help. Can you do this? And so you want to have that close long-term partnership with them. And I, that's what, that's what we try to stress with them, that we're in it for the long haul and they ought to view it that way too. That if we do a fixed fee and, we come out a little bit ahead in the first one. You know, we're not going to try and stiff you. Just talk to us. And you know what? You'll probably come out ahead in the next one, and we're not going to complain at that. And our finance people love fixed fees because, you know, you're going to do a transaction. You say, it's going to cost this, and they just plug it into their numbers. What, what they don't like is uncertainty. Yeah, and that's certainly the theme that we hear time and time again, the predictability and certainty, of course, around fixed fees yeah. and nobody wanting to go back and ask for more budget in relation to you know, uh, unknown hourly rates. So, Cam, you've had some fantastic success in improving the way in-house legal teams operate so that you really you are operating the legal department as like a business. I'm interested in your thoughts on thinking 5, 10, 15 years out, what, what you think that looks like both from a general counsel's perspective and, and the way in which a legal department is likely to look into the future. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I, you, know, you can see some of the trends in front of us, and, I, and I'm not a particularly good predictor of the future. I confidently told my CEO in 2016 that there was zero chance of Donald Trump winning the election. So um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good at forecasting the future. But you, know, you can see, for instance, artificial intelligence and the effects it's having on the practice of law and things like reviewing contracts, not just reviewing documents anymore, but reviewing contracts and comparing terms to other contracts you've agreed to. And that, you know, that's going to put some lawyers in-house and outside, perhaps out of business or doing higher value work. Higher value work, Uh, yeah. 
I don't know enough about AI to really know how quickly that'll come, but it sure seems like it's moving along pretty fast. I, I, I think, you know, I'd love to say that the hourly rate will wither away, but I don't see it withering away anytime soon. There's certain matters that there's very hard to predict, but I do think that there'll be more fixed fees, more innovative fee arrangements. And, and, and the, the reason I think that's happening is law firms are embracing them and in many cases, bringing someone in the, into the firm that's an expert on alternative fees that will sit down with you and design alternative fee arrangements. Those are a couple, a couple of things I'd say. You know, I think both in-house and outside will probably need fewer people, but every time I say that, it doesn't happen. So, And I hope I can hang on long enough that it's after I leave. What about your advice to an aspiring GC of a Fortune 500 company? And thinking about, let's say, a junior lawyer that's thinking about that kind of path, perhaps a mid-tier, let's say, a 10-year lawyer, and perhaps even someone really close or just on the cusp. What are the words of wisdom coming from Cam Finlay to those aspiring future GCs of Fortune 500 companies? One piece of advice would be avoid your law firm's desire to make you specialize into a very narrow area of the law because you'll get pigeonholed. And if you're thought of as solely an employment lawyer or, you know, even more narrow, like a, you know, a a labor law side of employment law, then it, it will be harder to be viewed as the generalist that general counsels have to be. If you specialize in arranging a particular type of financial instrument or something. I think that it, it's just going to make it more difficult for you to take on this role where you're you know, you're dealing with a piece of litigation at 8 o'clock and at 8.15, you're talking about M&A, and at 8.30, you're doing a corporate governance issue and so forth. I would say for a mid-level person, I've seen this happen so many times. People will make partner in a law firm, and they want to be in-house, and they'll have an opportunity, but they'll say, well, I'm a partner in... X and Y law firm, that in-house role is below me. You know, obviously it'll usually be, it'll usually pay less, but they'll they'll think like I I should be a general counsel, and it's very hard to jump immediately from a law firm to be a general counsel. You know, we talk about headhunters. Headhunters look for somebody who either has been a general counsel or has been a senior person in an in-house role, and it's still relatively rare unless you have a long-standing relationship with a company to go straight from a law firm. So, so if you're a mid-level lawyer and you get an opportunity, just get in-house. You're a great lawyer. You'll move up quickly, and you'll have a good opportunity from within. If you view these positions as beneath you, you'll never, you'll never get in-house. So I, I think those are, and those are the things I'd say to a mid-level or a junior lawyer and a mid-level lawyer. For for somebody that's been out a, a, a long time, you know, 15 years, I'm tempted to say it's too late. Too late. <laughs> you know, you're making too much money. Yeah. You have gotten specialized. But I would say that you should think about, you know, if, if you really want to be in-house, just find the best opportunity you can and get in-house. And then, again, if you're a good lawyer, good things will happen. I think companies don't know what to do with somebody that's been in a law firm for 20 years often because you think differently in a law firm. You, you have to love the law, be cerebral about it. You have the luxury of time. And when you're in-house, you're being asked to answer 20 questions an hour uh, with incomplete information. And it, it really it depends on you having kind of good judgment and being quick on your feet. 
So the advice there is before getting too far down the track and too moulded into the law firm or the law firm mould, get your hands dirty and get into the in-house And I should have said on every level, it's important to network, let people know that you're interested in being in-house because many of the best people we've found, we've found that way, that they've they're in a law firm and we'll call somebody at the law firm or, or another law firm will say, we're looking for somebody to be a litigator. And I'll say, you know, I know that Lori is interested in coming in house. You know, would you like to talk to her? And we get the best people like that, much better than when we do searches, when we post jobs, we, we get them people that have just been out there networking. It's one of my philosophies, actually. I talk about when somebody says, hang on, I know someone, be that person. Yeah. Be that person that someone says, hang on, I know someone. Well, and I, I go back to my own career. I mentioned earlier that it was my Northwestern stuff that got me kind of noticed at Aon. And I remember I had two young boys at home at the time, and my wife was saying, you know, why are you going to this stupid alumni event? And <laughs> And I just did it because I enjoyed it and I loved my university. I wasn't I wasn't consciously networking, but in retrospect, yep. that's that's how I got to know my first CEO. And he saw something in me and you know that and then next thing I know I'm working as a general counsel. Yeah, it's one thing that I think about in my early days. I was a terrible networker. And I say to adult kids now, don't be a bad networker early on it actually really and not in a forced way just in being open to events opportunities occasions to actually meet people and contribute yeah. over the course of a long career it can make a world of difference just have, having a relationships it's it's fulfilling anyway but it also so helpful in one's career I think. yeah certainly tell me cam what are you most proud of and if i can break that down into professional and personal well professionally i think it's that having aspired to a career going in and out of government, having lots of interesting experiences, that as I get towards the end of my career, I, I look back and think, hey, you know, I pulled that off. So It wasn't too bad. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, not too bad. Personally, I think it's, you know, it's got to be with my wife. We raised two fine young men who are now 29 and 27. They're doing, you know, very interesting and fulfilling things in their life, not necessarily lucrative things, but they're doing what they want to do. And that's, as a parent, that's what you aspire to, that your, your children just grow up and have good lives like that. Yep. And one question, Cam, that I, I like to finish off my interviews with is what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Although it doesn't sound like you needed a whole lot of advice, I've got to tell you, because you, you nailed the careers. No, but I, I didn't take, I did not take this advice, actually, to spend your money on experiences and not material things. You'll always remember yep. you know, the trip to the Amalfi Coast or Morocco or, or Scotland or whatever. And the table or the car or the rug that you bought, it will you'll get really sick of it very quickly and it'll be valueless. And when you move house, it you'll try <laughs> to sell it, it and you won't pain. be able to get anything for it. So yeah, just allocate more of your money to experiences rather than things. Well, Cam, it's fantastic to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed our time together. Well, Jim, it was really a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit 
P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.